0: Welcome to the podcast of Christ Community Baptist Church, located in Prestonsburg, Kentucky, the heart of Appalachia. We are a reformed, confessional, and gospel centered church seeking to make disciples by declaring the gospel, displaying the gospel, and defending the gospel to the glory of God and the eternal good of our neighbors. We pray that this teaching you will soon hear is edifying, faithful to Scripture. And Christ exalting, come join us for worship this Lord's Day. For more information about CCBC, visit ccbcpressingsburg.org. Well, it is always an honor to be able to gather with the Lord's people on the Lord's Day, and I would invite you to take your Bible with me and let us turn to Psalm eighty-four. Psalm eighty-four. And the title of the message this morning is The Christian's Longing. The Christian's Longing. Psalm 84, beginning in verse number 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, They make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let's pray together. Our kind Father as we now come to the proclamation of your word, we ask that your spirit would cause our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to be stirred by Christ and all his beauty and glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It was a man who left home and went and lived in a foreign country for 41 years. When he departed his homeland, he resettled in a strange land, never to return to all that he had known. While there in this strange land, he knew a lot of sorrow and he knew a lot of tragedy. He saw the loss of children. He not only saw his first wife, but then his second wife pass away in this strange land. At one point during his life there, he watched the work that he had done in translating the Bible into this native tongue be burned up and have to re-begin this labor that he had to see the Scriptures put in the tongue of the people that he was seeking to win to Christ. He waited seven years before he saw his first conversion and baptized the first believer in that land. He was a dying man at the end of his life and longing to see the Lord. He was tired and he was weary. But the work that he had done there had made its way back home, and some had begun to treat him as a celebrity. They wanted, for example, artifacts from his work and his labors to be brought back and to be put on display. There were men who wanted to write biographies and recount his venture. He kind of found all of that overwhelming in a sense. And he did not appreciate the kind of strange attitude that some had, had to the mission labors. But as he was dying, his nephew, who would become one of his first biographers, was talking to him, and he said, I want you to write this about me. He said, quote, If one should think it worth his while to write my life, I will give you a criterion by which you may judge of its correctness. If he gives me credit for being a plotter, He will describe me justly. Anything beyond this will be too much. I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. Well, that statement was made by the great Baptist missionary William Carey, who left all that he knew in England and went and lived in India for 41 years, laboring to preach the gospel, to translate the scriptures and to the tongue of the people there in India. That's one of my favorite quotes because I think that that really captures what it is in the Christian pilgrimage, that we are plotters, that we are persevering, that we are heading towards the final perfect destination. That is the full presence of the living God for all eternity. It is therefore a life of plotting. And our means of doing so is found here in Psalm 84. It is the longing of the plotter, the Christian's longing. Just real quick, as far as context, Psalm 84 is a part of a section of the Psalms that is from Psalm 78 to Psalm 85. Psalm 78, many think that this section kind of is reflective, or maybe these Psalms were written after the Israelites had been in captivity in Babylon. And so if we keep that as kind of the frame, Psalm 78 is a retelling of Israel's history of their disobedience. Their unfaithfulness is contrasted with God's faithfulness. They're exiled out of the land as punishment for their disobedience. Psalm 79 is dealing with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And then Psalm 80 is a prayer of the people for God to restore the temple, restore them to that place In Jerusalem Psalm 81 looks to the day when all of the feasts that the Israelites had celebrated find their fulfillment in the one who is to come by Yahweh then judging those gods of the earth the false idols and then in Psalm 83 he will judge the nations that had opposed the people of God our text Psalm 84 is the pilgrim who is longing to dwell in Zion to be in the presence of a living God. And Psalm 85 has been the worship of this God, worshiping the Lord due to his righteousness and his steadfast love for his people. So for us, uh, this pilgrim who in the immediate context would have been an old covenant believer going up to Jerusalem, but we see the parallels that it has for us as believers in Christ, as true Christians. We long for true Zion, for the presence of the living God. All of these psalms point ultimately to Christ and what he has done. He is the one who brings about a new exodus and he has called us unto himself. First Peter describes us as elect exiles. We are sojourners and we are sojourning to Zion. We are longing for that new Jerusalem We know right now in part what Christ has done, but we are longing for the fullness of his glory, for the completion of our salvation. For the Israelite in the Old Testament, they were required three times a year to go up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, of tabernacles or booths, and for Pentecost. And the psalmist here is one of those men going up to Jerusalem, and he is filled with great expectation of gathering with the people of God and the house of God to worship God. And for us as Christians, we long for the fullness of God's presence during our pilgrimage as we are sojourning to Zion. And the road and the journey is hard, and we draw strength from Zion itself for the pilgrimage, and we only know satisfaction in this pilgrimage by the divine goodness of God that comes from Zion. So in our text, I want us to see three longings that the Christian has. The Christian longs for God's presence, the Christian longs for strength from Zion, and the Christian longs for satisfaction from divine goodness. So let's think, first of all, verses 1 through 4. We long for God's presence. I mean, it's right there in verse 1 and verse 2. We feel the emotion. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. So it's very expressive, the deep desire it kind of harkens back to an earlier psalm in Psalm 42, verse 1 and verse 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Here it is the question that is in front of every person How do I find true contentment and happiness? If we were just to go walk down the street and ask people, where is true happiness and contentment found? We would get a multitude of answers. But all of the answers that we would give as men and women, based upon the things of this earth, they are temporal, they're fleeting, and they only give a passing satisfaction. Where is real joy at, though? Where is real happiness? Where, Where is the true good at? The answer is found in what the psalmist longs for. It is only found in the living God. It is only found in Him. Only in God do we find contentment and delight that satisfies the soul. And so the psalmist, when he says, How lovely is your dwelling place. That dwelling place in Jerusalem here. The temple before that. The tabernacle. Yes, they were were places that had some beauty to them. But I don't believe the psalmist is saying how lovely is in the tabernacle the tapestry or in the temple the gold there. Now this is equated with the Lord himself. The dwelling place of God is equated with God himself. How lovely are you, O Lord. For when the old covenant Israelite came into the temple in Jerusalem, he knew that he was entering into a literal structure but that there was something spiritual that that structure represented. It was where God dwelt at at that time. He dwells here in the temple on Mount Zion. And so the psalmist longs to be again at the temple in Jerusalem because that is where God is. And he wants to be there in the presence of the Most High. Why does he long for the presence of God? Why would we long for the presence of God? Well, as the Second London Baptist Confession says in chapter 2 on God and the Trinity, paragraph 2, it, it has this opening statement. God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself. That is why He longs for the presence of God. That is why we long, for there is only in God are these things found. God's dwelling place is nothing but pure goodness and glory. The psalmist addressed him as the Lord of hosts. He is the Almighty God and this Almighty One invites us, mere creatures that he has redeemed to come into his presence and commune with him. So when the psalmist says the dwelling place of the Lord is lovely, yes, the temple was beautiful in an architectural point of view, but it's beyond that. It's because God is there. And that is why it is lovely and beautiful. The question for us this morning is, are we yearning to be in the presence of God, to gaze upon Him and see Him in all of His glory and all of His beauty? How often do we find ourselves longing for things that are trivial, that are mere trifles, compared to the living God? David says in Psalm 27:4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Herein is the greatest desire our hearts can have. That is that we may gaze upon him, learn of him, fellowship with him. It is for us this morning that we would long to have sweet communion with the living God. Have you had days where you feel the intensity here that the psalmist has in verse 2? Where he says, my soul longs, it faints for the courts of the Lord, for the presence of God. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. You can translate it this way. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. So an intense, passionate desire to know Him, to adore Him, to commune with Him. An 18th century Baptist pastor, Samuel E. Pierce, wrote a commentary on the Psalms. And he says this about this verse. He says, As the glory, splendor, and majesty of Christ break forth on the mind, and the love of God is shed abroad in the heart, the soul cannot but long to be in His presence chamber. And it's sometimes such to real saints to be admitted to keep His gospel institutions in remembrance of Him, to have free admittance and access unto Him, to find He is near unto them, and that He is pleased most freely and fully to hold communion with them and to communicate a fresh sense, taste, and enjoyment of His love to their minds. What he's getting at is that's exactly what happens when we gather on the Lord's Day. We don't travel to a physical temple in Jerusalem. But as the new covenant people of God, 1 Peter 2 says, we are living stones that have been made into this house. Christ himself is the fulfillment of the temple. And we've been brought and made a part of his body. And every Lord's Day when we gather together and we hear the word preached and we sing it and we pray it and we celebrate it in the ordinances, We are coming into the very presence of the living God. Jesus Christ comes and by His Holy Spirit communes and ministers to us and says, I am with you and I dwell with you. So it does not matter the, the physical building or location, but when a congregation gathers together, we are saying, How lovely is the dwelling place of you, O Lord, for you dwell in the midst of your people. The psalmist is so desirous that he even comments in verse 3, thinking about that physical structure in Jerusalem, about the birds, the sparrow and the swallow that have have made a nest there, that they are continually there in the house of God. Verse 4, he said, Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. It's the first time that he uses the term here, blessed or, or happy, are or those who are ever there praising you, worshiping you. The question before us this morning is, do we see that true happiness and joy that it is found in the presence of God? How often are we guilty of seeking happiness and joy outside of the living God? The great lie that the tempter, that the world and our flesh tell us is that there is real pleasure found in doing things our way and laying hold to the fulfillment of every lust and desire. Well, there is pleasure in sin, but it's fleeting and it's very costly. But the blessed man, verse 4 here, blessed are those takes us back to Psalm 1 where the happy man, the blessed man, is the man who meditates on the scripture day and night and he longs for the presence of God. It's the longing of the soul that only God himself can satisfy. For though it is marred by sin, every human being, every person is made in the image of God. And we were created to have communion and fellowship with God. The Trinity is the very foundation of all our comfort and communion. And yet we've been estranged and we've been cut off due to sin. And so we're constantly in our fallen nature trying to find something to satisfy the soul that only God can. How can that longing be satisfied? Well, it is done so in Jesus Christ. One of the great Puritans, John Owen... And his great work, Communion with God, says this Whilst there is this great distance between God and man, there can be no walking in fellowship or communion. Our first relationship with God was so lost by sin that there was no possibility in ourselves of any return to God. Christ, then, is the foundation. Of all our communion with God and by the Spirit, believers now receive boldness of faith. Consider how greatly God has honored us. You see, God beckons us to come. He invites us to come. And only by way of another, by Jesus Christ, can we come boldly before the throne of grace. This morning, do you know this sweet communion with God? Have you known only communion with sin? Well, that leaves you with defeat, with woe, with heartache. Jesus Christ says, come to Him. Know Him. Rest in Him and He frees us from the bondage of sin. Christ does not present a list of terms and says, if you fulfill these terms, then you may come to me. No, he says, come to me as you are. And he receives us. So I, if you've not come to him, come to him. And brothers and sisters, he still calls us to come to him. This morning, do, do we long for God as we should? Do we long for his, his presence? Maybe we're here this morning. Maybe we're kind of in a spiritual funk. Or we're kind of you know cold, callous. Maybe it's been a bad week been a bad month. Maybe it's been a bad year. Sometimes it may be it's felt like bad years. I want you to remember this. That God has called us to himself. And one day these eyes will be changed. And I want you to listen at what we will enjoy. Revelation 21, 22 through 25. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamp. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. That's what we are called to. And that is what awaits us. That is the fullness of the presence of God. And there will be no end to that. So, that is what we long for. And I want you to see now, second, that longing is in a pilgrimage. And we long, therefore, for strength for the pilgrimage from Zion. Verses 5-8. through Notice how the psalmist longs for strength. He said, blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. So, we think about in the immediate context this old covenant saint making his way to Jerusalem for one of the annual feasts. He's on a pilgrimage, and that pilgrimage to the temple is symbolic of the pilgrimage that we are on spiritually to Zion. The language here in verses 5 through 8 speaks of it being hard at times, being difficult, and yet pilgrims find strength in the Lord who makes the arduous journey into one of spiritual rest because of the strength that we gain from Zion. Notice in verse 5, he uses the term blessed or happy again. Are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion or whose heart is set on pilgrimage. So look at that. We find strength in the Lord as we journey to Zion, and the strength that we find is given to us from Zion. And in that strength, there comes a transformation. The term here, the Valley of Baca, it's debated over whether that was a literal place in Israel, or if it's more of a a figure of speech, it's typological or agorical, because it literally means the Valley of Weeping. And what it's saying here is the Lord changes the valley of weeping or the valley of hardship into a place of springs or a place of refreshment. Dr. Jim Hamilton writes, This line seems to communicate that those whose strength is in God enjoy His provision even in deepest affliction. God's blessing clothes their lives with blessings. The early rain enfolds them in God's care. The word picture seems to assume a dry journey through a difficult place made passable by God's provision of springs of water and early rain. You know, the Christian life is paradoxical at times. And here we are in union with Christ. We have communion with the Almighty God, and yet there are seasons that feel very spiritually dry that feel very hard, that are difficult. We're in this world, but we're not of the world. We're here, but we're not here in a sense. We live in a place of tension, where we know that we have been saved, and we know the grace of God, and we, we know communion with Christ, but yet we don't know it fully. It's not perfect yet. We're saved by God's grace, and we've been saved for all eternity. We've begun the pilgrimage from a place of strength. That we are in union with Christ. That we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit and we're adopted by the Father. And yet this journey is one where there are many valleys of Baca. Affliction. Challenges. Battles. It feels like a war at times. And yet, we're not alone. We do not go on this pilgrimage as a people in isolation who are depending upon our own strength. But we are united with the Son of God. John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We are journeying to Zion. And we are in need of the grace of Zion for this journey. Brothers and sisters, we're a blessed people because we rest upon and find strength from the God of Zion. Our destination is His very presence, and we only will arrive there by way of His strength. That's why the psalmist said, Blessed are those who go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. He has decreed the beginning and He's decreed the ending and everything that happens in between, He sustains and brings us. And that's why the prayer there is in verse 8. O Lord, God of hosts, the Almighty God, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Because prayer is our confession of our dependence and reliance upon Him. That we do need His strength. We, We dare not think for a moment that we can somehow sojourn by our own ability and our own might. We come before the throne of Zion with petitions and longings to be there and knowing that we rest upon the king of Zion to bring us safely through. Now brothers and sisters, that means we must keep things in perspective because there are real valleys of weeping. There are real hurts and real pains that we suffer in this life. There are real tears that we shed. There are real seasons of grief. We can feel weighed down, and it feels as if we are being buffeted and punched over and over by Satan, by sin, and the world. And perhaps we can even get to such a low place in a valley where we begin to wonder, is it really worth it? Is this pilgrimage worth it? Are my cries even heard by the God of Zion? It is worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory behind all comparison. Amen. Paul says it's an affliction. It's real. But in perspective, that one day we will see and behold the full beauty, glory, and radiance of our Lord. That what those men on the Mount of Transfiguration saw for a moment, we will see for all eternity, Paul says, that's the eternal weight of glory. So in comparison, it is worth it. We do keep pressing on because we have strength from on high. So that sin that we're fighting and we're waging war against. We can't overcome it because we're in Christ. Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for it. He has freed us from it. And we have been given the Holy Spirit. And we have access to the Father. So we keep plotting and we keep fighting as we long for strength from Zion. And here's what, as I said earlier, is kind of that paradoxical. Not only are we longing to go to Zion... But there's a sense in which we have already come to Zion. In fact, we have come to Mount Zion, as we heard earlier, right now. Do you know? Do we we comprehend or even fully seize what it means that when we gather, as the people of God on the Lord's Day, you know, every Lord's Day, all across this globe, the people of God are gathering in different locations. And while we're separated by geography, there's a sense in which we are all gathered together with the saints and the angels around the throne. So while we have not yet seen Zion fully, we know it in part now. Listen again to those words from Hebrews 12, 22-24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in the festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. May that lift our hearts up this morning to know we have come into the very presence of the living God here in this place and in this time. We've come together to Zion and we're confessing our need for strength and our longing for Zion. So you may be here today and you might say, Preacher, the pilgrimage feels like a rough patch of life right now. I want you to know you have come to Mount Zion. You have come into the presence of the Almighty God. And every Lord's day, He, by His gracious means, by the word and the ordinances and prayer and fellowship, gives us strength week after week after week to continue the journey. For those old covenant saints that had to travel, that is why He was filled with a great longing. No doubt there were many Israelites who moaned and groaned about having to go up to the temple. Growing up, I promise you, my mom and dad, we were at everything, every time at the church. And the doors were open. And I promised that there were many times I felt as a kid, do we have to? Do we have to go? Brothers and sisters, there's a big difference from when do I have to, that I get to. And we get to come and gather together and worship the Lamb. So in this journey, the Christian longs for that presence of God. He longs for strength from Zion to make the pilgrimage. And then I want you to see third, in that pilgrimage, he longs to be satisfied. Satisfied by divine goodness. The psalmist says some very remarkable things in these last verses of the psalm. In verse 9, he says, Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed." For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. You see, the psalmist here understood what the journey to the temple was really about. Those feasts that they were to go up to three times a year, at Passover and at the booths and the Pentecost, that was an ordained means that God had given to the people. And they were to reflect and to worship and to celebrate His goodness. But each of those feasts were pointing to some greater reality. And by faith, that true Israel... And ethnic Israel, saw what those things were communicating. That God had promised that the true son of David would come. And he would bring about the true exodus that was typified by Moses. That hope centered upon the anointed one, the Messiah, who would come and restore the people of God. And he would spread his glory so that it would not just be there in the location of the Jewish nation, but to the ends of the earth. That God's presence would fill the entire globe. In that sense, the Messiah would do, as the second Adam, what the first Adam failed to do. But the first Adam was to take the garden that was, in a sense, a, a temple. And he was to expand it across the entire globe. What he failed to do when Jesus Christ comes. And he is the full perfect temple of the living God. And he is building a people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And his glory is going to the ends of the earth. That is why in verse 9, the psalmist begins here Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. This is the prayer. And it is a prayer for a reference to the Messiah. That only through the Messiah will all these things that he's longing for come to pass. It is in the Messiah that true happiness and joy will be found. The psalmist connects the protector of God's people as the one who brings favor to the people in the presence of the Almighty God. And he says that in verse 10, a, a verse that's very often quoted. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The psalmist is saying that in the presence of God, there is where true goodness is found. There is where true beauty is found. There is where true contentment is found. The blessing of God that is found in the presence of God is not found in the tents of wickedness. Yes, there's real pleasure in the tents of wickedness, but it is something that is fleeting and it is passing. In God's house, in His dwelling, there is real contentment and satisfaction, a true pleasure and happiness. For with God, the joy with Him is not a vapor. It is a joy that lasts and only deepens the closer we get to Zion. The only way we know this blessing is by way of the Messiah, for he is the mediator and the redeemer. Our only hope, therefore, is in the coming of the Anointed One in Christ. C.H. Spurgeon said, under the most favorable circumstances in which earth's pleasures can be enjoyed, They are not comparable by so much as one in a thousand to the delights of the service of God. To feel His love, to rejoice in the person of the anointed Savior, to survey the promises and feel the power of the Holy Ghost in applying precious truth to the soul is a joy which worldlings cannot understand, but which true believers are ravished with. Even... A glimpse at the love of God is better than ages spent in the pleasures of sins. I want you to hear carefully what the text is saying. We know true freedom, true happiness, and true contentment, serving God, knowing God, and dwelling with God. Now there is promises that sin makes. It promises freedom, liberty, and happiness But what it really is, is bondage. Because no matter what sin promises, it's nothing but a cruel taskmaster. And what it pays in is the wages of death. Physical death and eternal death. The psalmist said that in the house of God is life and freedom and joy. And that is the joy we are to feel every Lord's Day as we come and gather. We have come into the house of God to dwell in His presence. Herein is the true joy that we find. And so the psalmist says in verse 11 then, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. He said earlier that the, the anointed son, look on his face for he is our shield. Then he says here the Lord God is a sun and a shield. And it's a confession that the Father and the Son are equal. The Son is just as much God As the Father. And we have sweet fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. Notice that he is described as a sun, a shield. The sun gives warmth and light. It brings forth life. And the shield protects and defends the people of God. He bestows favor and honor. Put it this way, he gives grace and glory to his people. That means that God gives us the grace we need. Not to dwell in the tents of the wicked. But to find satisfaction in Him. And there is a glory and an honor that He gives His people that nothing of this world can give. A life that is satisfied in God is a life that brings glory to God. And then look what He says in verse 11, the second part. No good thing Does he withhold from those who walk uprightly? Now, one of the lies that Satan says is that God does withhold things from us that are good, that he's keeping things from us. That's the exact lie that he spun in the gardens, and that is exactly what he's continued to say throughout the centuries. But I want you to know that the things that God prohibits, that God commands us not to do, it is for our good. He knows what He is doing. His law is for our good. Those things that He calls bad, they are bad. But those things that are good are truly good. It is not that God is wanting us not to enjoy something that is truly good. He calls us to enjoy that which is perfectly good. He calls us to enjoy Himself. So, beloved, remember He does all things for our good. And that which is truly good, He does give to us, and He never holds that back. And so by the power of His favor, of His grace, we can reject those lies from the evil one, and we can know that God does give us what is good. God gives us what is best. How can we know that? Because when we were wicked and ungodly, Christ died for us. He has given us His only begotten Son. We enjoy everything in Jesus Christ. We are joint heirs with the Son. I, I, that Just think on that for a moment. That's astounding. That the King of glory, that all that He has, He shares with us. That's why He told His disciples, I've called you friends. Friends of the King. That you sit at my table and enjoy everything that is mine. So no matter what Satan says, We are not missing out on anything that is truly good and beautiful and wholesome. Because if we are faithfully serving the Lord, He has given us everything. That's why Paul said in Philippians 4, 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ. So that's why the psalmist then says, O Lord of hosts, Blessed, happy again, is the one who trusts in you. That's the one who is truly happy. The one that knows that he needs or she needs the strength of the Lord to be satisfied with divine goodness. The tents of the wicked seem prosperous and good, but however we know and we have tasted that which is truly good. We've been given Christ and there is nothing that compares to Him. He does all things well. And there's nothing, no claim that can be equaled like that in the tents of the wicked. So friend, you may be here and you have believed a lie. That you know this religion thing sounds good, feels good at times. But ultimately I know that I will be missing out on things if I follow God. Jesus and I just don't want to do that. I'm not going to stand here this morning and tell you that sin doesn't feel good and that there's not pleasure in the world because there is. It's there. And Satan is a master manipulator and salesman. He's got a lot of practice. He's been doing it a long time. And he'll promise you whatever you want. He'll offer it to you. He'll offer you anything that your heart desires as long as you really sell yourself out to him and his kingdom. And he offers a lot of ways. He tells people you can be moral and you can be religious and have what you want. You can live like an utter pagan and heathen and have what you want. He's fine with any of those things. it's a lie. Because his promises are ultimately empty. And they are destructive. Because sin does destroy lives. It destroys lives in the present age. Your sin does not just affect you. My sin doesn't just affect me. It affects others. But maybe someone goes through life and says, I was okay, but it will bring you to eternal destruction. Eternal death. The tents of the wicked look good on the outside. They are very inviting, but once you are inside, you're slave to it forever. Unless the King of Glory comes. And I want you to know that the tents of wicked cannot stand up to His grace and His power. And He can come in and free you. And He brings you not to some... A uh, false tent, But he brings you into his home. He says that I, am, you will be and you will dwell with me. My Father and I will dwell and commune with you. Christ is the satisfaction of our longing. Because he is the one that brings true satisfaction. He's the very epitome of that which is good. He is the good shepherd and he gives himself to his sheep. The very longing of the psalmist is only found completed in him. And so we are marching to Zion. And the road is hard. But we long for that which is greater and better. And we have tasted it already partially. But we will know it fully one day. So brothers and sisters, like William Carey, we're plod. And we plod by grace and by grace alone. We long for Zion, and we draw strength from Zion. We are completely in awe that the Almighty God would choose to dwell with man, that He has freed us from the sinful whims of the world, and we have come and dwelt in the house of God. We found true freedom and happiness in union with Jesus Christ. We offer up praises to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, knowing that divine goodness is is the only satisfaction for the soul. So what are you longing for? Where is your strength at? Where is your hope at? May we remember that it is in Zion, and the King of Glory, who this very day again says to us as people, come and dwell with me. And to one who is outside of him, he says, come and know me, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we marvel that you and all of your glory and splendor, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, who is holy, 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 would love sinners such as us, that you would come by your grace, that you would send Christ to live in our place, die in our stead, Rise in glory and victory and give life to dead sinners such as us. We know that indeed, as the great Augustine said, our hearts are restless apart from you. We know no peace and no happiness and no joy apart from knowing you. Whether we've been a follower of Christ for just a few days, months, we've been following him for many years in this pilgrimage. May the hearts of your people here today be revived. May we know deeper the longing and to cry out and to know our God. your kingdom come, your will be done. And we pray this morning, come quickly, Lord Jesus, (coughs) that we might be with you and in your presence for all eternity. We thank you for the means of grace that you give to us during the pilgrimage to strengthen for your word. And even as we would come here in a moment to the Lord's table, whereby you refresh our souls and remind us that we are not alone in this pilgrimage. We confess our need of strength from Zion. And pray even now, O God, that one who is in the death of sin, who is in bondage to the devil, That your spirit would come and bring freedom and life in Jesus Christ to them. We ask these things in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen.